points. I, I'm glad that you have chosen to, to be in the room or watch online on this, uh, on this Father's Day. We are continuing in our series in the book of 1 Corinthians about churches in a crisis. And that is, was true then when it was written and it's true today. Now, a number of years ago, Twitter put out a survey asking people to share their experiences of church fights, church arguments, church divisions, and that survey went viral. It went viral with real answers from real churches. So I've picked seven of them just to give you a flavor of how, how Satan uses division for his advantage. Uh, this one church had a big argument and a church vote whether or not to remove the clock from the worship center room. Okay, maybe the pastor was going way too long and they wanted him to go longer. They had a vote over that. Another church, they had an argument and a church vote whether or not to install in the women's bathroom stalls between, you know, the different walls between the different stalls. Now, I believe that if that took place, no man should vote on that. Uh, it should be whatever the women would like, all right? Another uh, vote was an argument in this church is what picture of Jesus to put in the church lobby. Didn't know uh, photographs were taken at the time of Jesus, okay? But they had an argument over it. Uh, this, this was hot and heated at a church. Whether or not the worship leader was to be required to wear shoes while leading worship. That's a pretty, that was a pretty intense heated debate in that church. Here's another one. It, this one did not have just one business meeting to make a decision. They had two business meetings to decide the debate of whether or not the church should buy a weed eater. Yes, there's human beings who attend churches. And then this one was a spiritual decision. An argument broke out whether it was okay for communion to have for the Jews a combination of cranberry juice and apple, uh, grape juice or just keep it 100% grape juice. Big argument over that issue. And the last one I wanna share with you, uh, several families left the church over this issue because they were having arguments over whether to change the coffee in the lobby from Folgers, putting Folgers away and adding a Starbucks brand. And people left the church over that issue. I could go on and on. And if the longer you have been in church, you could give some stories too. And human beings, we are pathetic of arguing over issues that are not that important. And believe me, Satan uses that to his advantage all the time. And it happened from the very beginning. Again, because human beings go to churches. 
In in the church at at Corinth, it is what I refer to as the first church of the me generation church. It was all about what the individual wanted. Chapters one and chapter three, we talked about this a a couple weeks ago. They were disputing over who was the better spiritual leader, the better communicator. In chapter 11, they were disputing over the Lord's Supper and communion. And they're like, well, I want to eat when I arrive. I don't want to have to wait for people to show up. And there was arguments over that. In chapter 12, they were arguing over spiritual gifts. Well, obviously my spiritual gift from God is much better than your spiritual gift. And because I have this gift, obviously I'm closer to God. They were having those arguments and it still happens today. And then there were disputes over what took place in the worship service, chapter 14. But I want to do this. I want to say this. I think this should happen. I don't think that should happen. Today we're going to talk about, and we've issued, we talked about harder issues. We've talked about major issues that we've talked about in the last weeks. But this, what we're going to talk about today is very important, the principle of it, because they were disputing and having arguments and lining up sides over food, over food. Paul had to address this issue in chapter 8 and chapter 9 and chapter 10. It was that hotly debated, that hotly debated. Now, Paul, rather than taking sides under the leading of God and the Holy Spirit, challenged both sides, their attitudes and actions over what should be a higher priority and encouraged them to take the focus off of what they thought and to think about other people instead. So if you're taking notes, here's the crisis, the fourth crisis in this series that's still today. It's a crisis is when personal preferences are weaponized into spiritual mandates. When personal preferences are weaponized and turned into spiritual mandates. What are preferences? It's what I like. Today's sermon's title, I don't often tell you the title, but this one, I really want to drive this home. It's called Preferential Arrogance. Preferential Arrogance. Preferences are not bad. It's when we're arrogant about it. That I like this, and I think you should too. I think this is right, or I think this is wrong, and you should agree with me, and if you don't, uh, you, you, you really need to talk to Jesus about it, and I don't think I like you anymore. I don't think I like you anymore. Uh, if you saw my video, one-minute video of, uh, this week on social media, you said, we all have preferences, and I moved out of the way. I said, here's mine, and behind me on my wall, my office at home, was a big 49er logo, and I said, obviously, if you were, were walking with Jesus closer, you would understand that your pastor is right and agree with him. See, that, when we get that, that intense where we think we're right and you should agree with me, and if you don't, what I like or don't like, then, then uh, you know, obviously I'm closer to God and you're out of God's will, that is arrogance. And the enemy has used preferential uh, issues to, to, to divide churches. And I believe strongly, I've been in, I felt like I was born in the nursery back in the day. I've been in church all my life. And I have seen this, especially as a pastor, more people, this is my opinion, but based upon experience, more people leave churches upset over preferences than theological issues. They leave over preferences than doctrine because they like what they like 
and it didn't happen, so I'm, I'm leaving. I'm leaving. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. As Paul begins talking about this and answering, he was asked about it, please, please give us perspective, and he does that. Now, let me give you a, the cultural context, because if you just read it, you're going, well, obviously, we're not suffering or frustrated with that today. We're not dealing with that, so I'm just going to keep reading. No, 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 we're going to look at the principle behind this. But the cultural context will help you understand that uh, in Corinth, there are a lot of pagan temples that pagan worship took place at, but you got to understand these temples weren't just temples for pagan worship, they were, they were like the, the city restaurants because people would bring their animals, whether they're sheep or goats or, or bulls or whatever, to be sacrificed to, to this pagan god and then they would sacrifice it and they had leftover meat and then they had a place where people could go to that temple and eat. It was like a restaurant or they could buy, buy pretty good, you know, pretty good price some meat. And the question that the church people were fighting over and arguing with is, should a believer who has placed their faith in Jesus eat of that meat that was offered unto an idol? And there were those who were saying, absolutely not. They thought that, that's an offense to God. That, that's a pagan, that's an idol. We cannot, as a follower of Jesus, eat that meat. And others were saying, um, I don't have a problem with that. That idol is not God. There's no power there. I'm not worshiping that idol. I've surrendered my heart to Jesus and I get a good price for meat. I don't have a problem with it. And then they were like, obviously you have spiritual issues. I'm like, well, you have spiritual issues. Back and forth, back and forth. Satan's getting victories. They said, Paul, help us out. So he talks about it. That's the issue. Chapter eight, verse one. Paul says, now about food, sacrificed idols, we know, this is a quote from Corinth, we all possess knowledge. But then he says, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. I mean, they don't even know what they don't know. But whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food, sacrificed idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there were so-called, that was their so-called uh, quotes, right? Gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us, I mean us as believers, there is but one God, the Father from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. I mean, they haven't grown in their faith to understand all this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a God. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. That food is defiled, I can't eat it. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, sees you eating with all your knowledge, eating in the idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idol, idols? 
So this weaker brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again. I'm going to make that choice. So that I will not cause them to fall. Now, let me explain this phrase, um, stumbling block, about their stumbling block. You don't want them seeing you and become a stumbling block. What this means in context is causing someone to return to sin. They were involved in something sinful in the past. They, they met Christ, got forgiven, you know, placed in God's family. And now they're grown in their faith. And you do something that you know that they used to struggle with and that could cause them to fall back and return to sin. Many years ago when we had our old auditorium, um, a lady come up, don't remember who she was, have no recollection at all, but I remember the, the situation. She came up to me after a service and said, Pastor, this contemporary music offends me. It is wrong and should be removed from our church. And scripture says that if I'm offended, you need to take it out. So I asked her some questions. I said, um, how long have you been a follower of Jesus? She said something along the line of about 22 years. I said, really? So you've been that saved this long. What sin are you committing again because of this music? She goes, well, I'm not. So she was misinterpreting, misapplying this passage to think, well, if I'm offended by something, obviously you need to stop. The the issue was she just didn't like it. It shouldn't be in the church. Let me give you a better example and application. Say you have a friend and you know their past, and before Christ, alcohol was in charge of their life. And, and they, they, had, they had bondage to alcohol. Then they received Christ, they get forgiveness of sin, they placed in God's family, and, and over the time, uh, they've grown. And now they don't want anything to do with alcohol because it reminds them of a bad chapter of their lives. If you as a friend, and you know that history, Invite them, hey, I want to get together. Hey, let's meet at a tavern. One, you're being a bad friend. But that could be a stumbling block that triggers them to going back into that sin. Satan's always looking. He's, he's, He's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And he'll use people who they're not thinking of the other person. Now, in the Bible, let me be clear, there is a biblical command and mandate, it's very clear, do not become drunk. That's a sin. You're tipsy, you're sinning. Because now you're not in full control, the alcohol is now in control, and you open yourself wide to many stupid things. The Bible's very clear about drunkenness. But I grew up in a church, especially when I was young, a young boy, that it was communicated from the pulpit behind the large wooden pulpit. Many times, and therefore I thought it was true and biblical, it was preached that any Christian who has any alcohol is a compromising Christian if they are a Christian. 
They weren't teaching, that was extra biblical. They weren't teaching what the Bible says about it. They were taking an issue and they weaponized it to say, this is the spiritual mandate. And it took me many years to get over this. Now, here's my preference. This is for me, all right? And, and, and Kenny's with me on this, but for me personally, I have chosen to abstain from all alcohol. Why? Because at 17, I made a public vow to God to not drink alcohol. That was me and God. Now, it wasn't pushed in the youth group or my church. It was a vow. And I knew what scripture said about making vows. If you're going to make a vow to God, you best keep it. Okay? Because God takes vows seriously. But what I was taught was extra biblical. Extra biblical. See, what happens is when personal preferences are weaponized, they, be, they, they, they make things, issues that are preferences into spiritual mandates. Now, I'm not going to read the portion in chapter 9, but Paul then goes into about how he was being personally judged over a number of preferential issues. He was being judged on his title. And there are people like, oh, I'm not going to call you an apostle. And others would call him apostle. And Paul was like, um, but I am apostle. That's, that's the title God gave me. He was being judged over someone's preference, even his title. He was being judged on what he ate and what he drank. He was even being judged of you should not have a wife and a wife travel with you on your, on your missionary journeys. And he's like, I don't, I, I don't know where he stood being married, but he said, um, isn't Peter married and she travels with him? He was like, don't I have that right? He was even being judged over the issue of should he receive money for preaching the gospel? And there was a strong opposition. It's like, if you're going to teach the gospel, you should not do it for money. And he's like, I'm not doing it for money. In fact, I'd rather preach for free and not be accused of that because what was more important is preaching the gospel so that people would get saved. But it was an issue of, I don't think you should even get paid. And he's like, isn't a laborer worth his wages? And he goes on to talk about there are freedoms and there's rights and Whoa, 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 back off the judgment path, all right? So then with that, pick, pick up in, in verse, um, chapter 9, verse 19. Now he's going to give them why he does what he does with a higher priority. Verse 19. He goes, though I am free and belong to no one, meaning no human, I have made myself a slave to everyone. Why? To win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law. Meaning, they're Jewish people. They're under Mosaic law. I became like one of them, although myself am not under the law. He's under the new covenant from Jesus. He goes, why do I do this? So as to win those under the law. Verse 21. To those not having the law, that's Gentile, probably Romans, I became like one not having the law parentheses, very important, though I am not free from God's law, I mean, I still have God's moral law, but I am under Christ's law. Why do I act like a Gentile with other Gentiles? So as to win those not having the law. Verse 22, to the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might save some. I do all of this 
What's his strategy? I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Blessings when people come to faith in Christ. The issue all over these chapter eight, chapter nine, chapter 10 is a preferential issue. I don't have time to wrap up the end of chapter 10. You can read that uh, you know, at lunch today. Paul gets, comes back to this issue, basically says, if you want to eat meat, eat meat. If you don't want to eat meat, don't eat meat. If you're invited to a meal by an unsafe person, eat whatever they present to you. If someone's offended, then don't eat. Do all things for the glory of God. There's the higher principle. Now we today in churches don't suffer or suffer the, the, concept or the, the issue and debate over food. But let me, before I unpack some practical ways, if you're taking notes, this is super important. Our preferences are not essential issues. Essential. Is this so important that someone's eternity is at stake? If it's not, oh, no, no, that's not it, then it's a preference. If, if, if this issue is so important that every culture from every generation, it's clear in Scripture what is right and what is wrong, then that's essential. God's word is super clear. If God's word not very clear, that means you have freedom to choose what you prefer. And Paul's saying, and would you think about other people above yourself? Now, I'm gonna talk about some hot buttons in churches that have nothing to do with food, all right? Because we're not arguing over meat. Although, well done is my preference, so don't, don't, don't judge me. <laughs> now, if you're new to Grace Point, or if you've been here a while, this would, be, this would be helpful, or a reminder is this. Our number one priority at Grace Point is to be biblical. <laughs> be biblical. There there are, there are things that I teach that, you know what, I really don't enjoy teaching. We had that earlier in this series. But I teach it because it's not Barry's word, it's God's word. Okay, our number one thing, kids, middle school, teenagers, adults, is to be biblical. The second, super important, is our strategy. Our strategy is important of why we choose to do it this way here at Grace Point. Okay, thank you for, I'm glad you have wonderful experiences at your former church in the past. Thank God for that. But we're not your former church. We're Grace Point. So there's, we want to be biblical as our highest priority, not even a close second, but also we want to be strategic in our choices of how we do things. I'll give you some examples along the way. Here's the first issue that back in the day was a major issue, but it's still lingering around. It's the issue of conflict of Bible translation versions. Bible translation ver versions. I heard him rumble like, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. I, I have scars from, from these battles. Now let me explain if you're, if you're new to Bible study. The Bible was not written in English. Okay, got to know that. In the Old Testament, it was written in Hebrew and Aramaic, all right? The New Testament was written primarily in, in Greek. Then they were translated. Translated means from one language to another language. 
all right? And they were translated to Latin and then to German and eventually English. Now, you need to know this if you don't know anything about church history. People lost their lives translating the Bible into English. They were killed by other people professing the name of Christ. They lost their lives. The English translation has a bloody past, but I'm thankful for it because we can understand it. Now, translation version is taking that in English and saying it a little bit different. Saying a little bit different. When I study to share and teach God's word, my responsibility to be, is to be accurate to what the Bible says. And you go into the text. So then I do studies of what does this Hebrew word mean? What does this phrase mean? What is the cultural context of that? What is in the New Testament? What's, what does the Greek word or phrase mean? What is the whole cultural context? So I can accurately and contextually explain God's word in an accurate way so people can understand. I use all kinds of different Translations mean trying to go back to the original language. But when I teach publicly, the version I have chosen for many years now is a version with the hope for as many people as possible to understand it. Like, oh, I can, they're using words and how they arrange the words in a way that I can understand it. That is my strategy. Now, I have, over the years as a lead pastor here, I have had, it hasn't happened all the time, but there's been on several occasions, people stormed out of the room because when I began to read from this Bible, this version, they were upset that I didn't read from their version. I even got an email years ago one time from somebody that was questioning my salvation for the Bible version that I use. Like, I, I don't even know if you're saved. And the statement was even made that no one can trust in Christ as their savior if the message is preached from a version that's different than their choice. And I'm like, whoa, whoa. See how that is weaponized? And Satan gets victories for that. Another issue that is still around and debated is church dress and appearance. What should you wear? What should you look like when you go to the Lord's house? Okay? That's an issue. Now, when I was a boy, same church, and I'm glad that when I got older, a new pastor came in that went away from legalism. Okay, but when I was a young boy, our church had a rule that a man could not sing in the church choir if they had a beard. Okay, if you've seen the movie, The Jesus Revolution, it was a response to that culture of these hippies getting saved and going into churches. So our church, in response to that, it was communicated that, that we are, that, that is too worldly and no one could sing in the choir if they had a beard. And I remember I was, I was young enough to be holding my mom's hand on a Wednesday night as she was going to go to choir practice. I don't know where she dropped me off. I don't know what I did. But I clearly, absolutely remember this conversation as we're walking. I'm like, Mommy, uh, why, why can't Mr. Utterback sing in the choir? Well, honey, it's because he has a beard. We don't allow men who have, wear a, have a beard to sing in the choir. And I, just a little kid, I'll go, um... Mom, 
didn't Jesus have a beard? (laughs) See how a preference became a spiritual mandate and how confusing that could be? And it's so extra biblical. I have heard, not too much now, but definitely years ago, pastors should really wear a suit and a tie. And if you're gonna do communion, you must wear a suit and a tie. I did for a while, especially when I came back, 20 years as youth pastor coming back, for years I wore a suit and tie. But as I, around Kitsap County, inviting men to church, come visit, I kept hearing this. I would come, but I don't have anything to wear. Now, they had clothes, but they're like, I don't have a suit. I do not want to hinder anybody to go to heaven over a suit and a strangling tie, okay? And so I chose to do this. Oh, I kept hearing it when I would have, and I told, I finally said it publicly, I will wear a suit for weddings and funerals. Anything else is gravy. The New Testament instruction is very simple. Be modest. Now, if you really struggle with me not wearing a suit, you either get this, or I show up next week looking more like Jesus in a tunic. (laughs) And don't sit in the front rows (laughs) as you see my hairy legs. There's nothing in scripture that says what to wear. Now now we're gonna get a little more personal. Worship environment. Worship environment. Every church pastor should have stained glass windows because they they tell a picture and and it's the good theology. When we went from that auditorium to this auditorium and we did not have windows, oh, 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 did I hear, pastor, we need windows. <laughs> if you were here back in the day, <clears throat> back in the Old Testament years, um, those, those windows are beautiful, those long windows. But you try preaching God's word in a windstorm or a rainstorm and Lord help you if it's snowing. I lost my audience every time, especially when it snowed, the entire audience really coming down. And I'm preaching my heart out. We don't have windows for two reasons. Because we use a lot of multimedia and I want you to focus on the word of God, okay? And 10 months out of the year, it's depressing to look out. Anyways. Um, Why are the lights lowered, pastor, during singing? There's no Bible verse for that, but there's a strategy. We lower the lights during worship, because the brighter it is, more men stop singing. And I've talked to so many men, they're like, you're right, Pastor. You're right, you're right. And when I told those people, they're like, oh, I never thought about that. Yes, we have a strategy. I'd rather have more people uh, not being distracted to worship. And most men were like, thank you, Pastor. Thank you. Um, Pastor, we used to hear everyone's faith story before they got baptized. We should go back to that. My preference, I want to. I would love it. I love hearing people's face story. But what we found time and time again is we were, people were not getting baptized because we were leveraging the number one human fear, public speaking. And so extroverts are like, no problem, I'll share. Some introverts, but most people are like, 
they, I, I don't want to get baptized. So we take that away and we've seen more people get baptized. There is no Bible verse that says you must say this, this, and this before you get baptized. They are saying a lot by going public with their faith that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior, that he died, was buried, rose again. We can celebrate that. My preference, I would love to have more videos like we used to, but I'd rather have more people get baptized. Now we're really going to step into it. Worship styles. Worship styles. How long you've been in church, you know what I'm talking about, a.k.a. worship wars. This is the number one, still today, the number one issue of division in churches between generations. Number one conflict in churches today. So let's look at scripture. Colossians chapter three. Let the message of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and as you admonish one another with all wisdom through preaching. Is that what it says? No, it says that in other places. Teach and admonish, you know. Be in season, out of season, teaching God's word. But when it comes to singing, we need to teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the spirit, of spiritual songs. It literally means songs from the Holy Spirit. Singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And this question is asked so many times. So how is worship today? Well, the person that you asked that question, if they were in attendance, they often refer to do I li- did I like the song choices? That's not what the scripture is saying. Worship is determined, did I sing to God with gratitude in my heart? If I didn't sing to God with gratitude in my heart, then I didn't worship or had a bad attitude. God wasn't glorified by my attitude. But we always say, we always, come on now, come on, I'm, I'm talking, this is reality. It's do I like the song choices or not? Now, let me make a true statement. Every generation thinks their music is the best. Every generation. If, you're, if you grew up with big band and it comes on, you're like, oh, yes, yes, yes. I grew up late 70s, 80s, where I started getting into music, and obviously everybody realizes that Huey Lewis and the News rocks, all right? <laughs> And, and Chicago is just amazing. And I played some songs for my youngest daughter years ago in my truck and we're driving. I'm like, oh, honey, you're going to love this song. I played it from Huey Lewis. And I'm like, yes, it's awesome. It's awesome. It's all done. I said, so Kaylee, what do you think? She goes, I don't ever want to hear that song again. <laughs> the same is true when it comes to worship songs. But you're going, Pastor, I know some, I'm reading some of your mind. Pastor, it's right here in Scripture. We need to have more hymns. Okay, what I'm, what I'm telling you is I've had, when my mom was still alive and came to our church, I had many conversations with my mother about this. So I'm not thinking about any of you. If, if the Holy Spirit is, then you'd be under conviction. Um, <clears throat> it's right there. Right there, and the younger generation, you need, to, you need to know and appreciate the hymns of the faith because of the rich theology. And we're having too many 7-Eleven songs, seven words repeated 11 times. <laughs> Thanks, Mom. 
Some of you are like, preach it. <laughs> okay, can we, can we look at what that words actually mean? Okay, in, in, not in English, but in what well, we've added to the definitions. Here's in the Greek. Psalms means, not talking about we got to sing from David, which is cool. We do that sometimes. But psalms simply means songs of praise, often with instruments. Often with instruments. This word was made up, created by a guy named Homer. And I'm not talking Homer Simpson, okay? <laughs> Homer, Iliad and Odyssey, Homer. He invented this word with the definition of songs of enthusiastic praise. And he's talking about a conquering hero, which applies to Jesus Christ, Amen. all right? But it's songs with enthusiastic praise and the swing, the emotion and the passions of songs of prayer. Hear the passion, hear the solitude. That's what hymns mean. And then spiritual songs are songs that are given by the Holy Spirit. These Greek words say nothing about how many stanzas, how many times the chorus is repeated, how old it is, and the depth of theology. It, they're general Greek words of use all kinds of singing to worship the truth about who God is. And we, as human beings, line up with our preferences. If we don't get our way, then either we leave the church or we complain to others. Or we write the pastors. And if you have a complaint, email kevin at gracepointchurch.com. Okay? And by the way, full disclosure, anonymous notes. We are tell the office, don't send them our way. If you don't want to put your name down there, we won't respond to you. And we will if you do, not, not harshly, but it's like we want to hear you, but that's where we're at. Now, my preference, my preference, and I know I'm right, <laughs> is I think we should sing twice a month, How Great Thou Art and Shout to the Lord, okay? And um, if Nash gets his heart right with Jesus, <laughs> then we'll do that. <laughs> no, he's, he's running audio for online. I give him one mandate of song selections. You seek God, you pray, and you seek what, God, what songs God wants you to lead. So if you have a problem with his choices, you should probably pray for Nash and say, God, lead him. And please don't tell God. And lead him to pick my songs. <laughs> I want him to pick God's songs. Seriously, he takes this very seriously, which I highly appreciate and the worship team all know this. As we plan, he, he's, like, he, he's weeks out, but then there's times where he goes, I don't have any songs yet for this Sunday because I just don't have peace with God. I don't have direction from God, so I'm just gonna keep praying. Hallelujah, that's what we want. So biblically, we have psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs every week at Grace Point. But hymns, well then, you're talking about really, really old hymns, old hymns, kind of recent hymns and new hymns. Pastor, there's not new hymns. The number one hymn writer today, in my opinion, is Phil Wickham. Amazing words. Preferences, preferences, preferences. So I'm gonna finish with 1 Corinthians 8.8. 8. Paul says, for food. That's what they were arguing about, debating. For food does not bring us near to God. I mean, if you accept Christ, you're already near to God. You're in his family. Do eating, it's not gonna make you more close to him. You know, more a son, more a daughter of God. It doesn't work that way. It says, for food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat 
food uh, off to idols, and no better if we do. Let's apply it today. You can fill in the blank, your issues, okay? For wearing suits does not bring Barry closer to God, and Barry is no worse if he wears a suit, and no better if he does. And you, you may think, well, I think he'd be way better preacher. That's, that's an issue. That's a preference, all right? Uh, stained glass windows, old songs, new songs. This verse applies to all, all of these issues. They are preferences, not essentials. So as I wrap up, here's three important questions. It'd be helpful for you, all of us to constantly wrestle with about issues, okay, issues. First one is this, this issue, is it essential or preferential? Is someone, someone's eternity, is it at stake? Okay, now if they are not accurately dividing the word of God, the answer is yes, that's essential. But my song choices, my attire, what I think they should wear, what da, 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 is it essential or preferential? Second question, Am I being judgmental about my preferences? If you are, then that's where I have done this, you have, you have done this, where we become arrogant with our preferences. We're judging other people because they're not doing things the way we think they should do. I don't like this, you shouldn't like it, I don't think this should happen in church, so therefore you are compromising. If it's a preference, are you being judgmental? Because if you are, then you've, you've taken, a, for a preference which is not wrong to do that, you become arrogant. Last question is this, are my preferences more important than my church's mission? Satan will do anything to get us off our mission. We exist to help people, help children, help teenagers, help adults, to meet, know, follow Jesus. Not to argue over preferences. What is more important? Again, most people leave upset at a church over preference, not mission, not theology, not doctrine. So we all wrestle with this. I've had to grow in this, especially the, the upbringing in church that I had as a young child. What does God's word say? Let's major on the majors, not majoring on the minors. When we, when we do that, Satan gets victories. Would you pray with me? God, thank you so much for Paul taking a practical, debatable, divisive issue in their day, but the principles that you led him to talk about that helps us in the issues that divide us in churches today. Lord, help us understand there's more at stake, there's higher things of higher importance that we should spend our time and energy and emotion on than arguing over what we like and what others should like, like us. So Lord, help us to not let Satan win here at Grace Born Church. Help us as we continue to help all kinds of people meet, know, and follow Jesus. We don't want to get diverted off of that mission. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. amen.